This is Emma Sutherland. Join us on FX Medicine next week for a bumper edition with Dr. Christina Harris about the latest research and clinical tips on omega-3 fatty acids. Subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app and follow us on social media to make sure you never miss an episode. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia where we live and work and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders, past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hi, and welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional, and complementary medicine. I'm Emma Sutherland, a Sydney-based naturopath, and joining us on the line is Belinda Kirkpatrick, clinical nutritionist and naturopath, and founder of BK Naturopathy and Nutrition. She's helped hundreds of patients overcome their fertility challenges, and that is what she's here to discuss with us, how to help your patients experiencing infertility but today we are going to focus on the men. Welcome to FX Medicine, Belinda. Thanks, Emma. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Now tell us a little bit about yourself, your qualifications, your experience. Who is Belinda Kirkpatrick? <laughs> Good question. Um, so um, I'm a naturopath and nutritionist, like you mentioned. I've been in clinical practice for over 17 years now. I've got a master's in reproductive medicine uh, in addition to my Bachelor of Health Science in naturopathy. And yeah, I'm in clinical practice five days a week and, and absolutely love it. So the majority of my patients are fertility patients and I am really passionate about the male side as well as the female side, um, because it does often get overlooked. Mm, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, we, we've had many conversations over the years about this topic and, it, and it's just great to be able to deep dive into it with you on FX. So let's just look at some statistics. Let's just set the scene. So according to the Fertility Society of Australia and New Zealand, one in six couples have difficulties falling pregnant. And overall, you know, it's about one third of infertility cases are caused by female issues and one third by male and the last third by both male and female. And there's the 2020 projection of Australia's future fertility rates report. And this I found really fascinating. It said that in 1961, the average number of babies per woman was 3.55. And as of 2018, it had dropped to 1.74. And the predictions are that in 2030, it's going to be 1.7 babies per woman. So does this have anything to do with male fertility? You know, this is what we're here to talk about today. So what's your overview on those stats? I mean, I guess in one way they're such scary stats, aren't they? Because, you know, if, yeah. it, if it is because of, of a fertility decline and people are trying to have that many babies, then it's a massive issue. Mm. Um, I think we know that sperm counts have declined, which we're obviously going to get into more in the next little while together. Mm. And I think there's probably two arms with the statistics that, that you kind of mentioned there. I don't know how many women certainly in, in, you know, women I know and in my clinic want to have three and a half or four mm. babies. Um, you know, so some of it might be that we are leaving it a little bit longer. You know, obviously, you know, housing prices are expensive, schools are expensive, life's expensive. Yeah. So some of that may actually be that 
They don't want to have as many babies as before, better contraception and things like that. But certainly, as you and I know as practitioners, people are really struggling to fall pregnant. And and I feel like even in, I feel like maybe we've been practicing for the same amount of time, actually. But yeah. um, in that 17 years, I would say that over the last sort of even five and 10, I feel like I've noticed an even bigger jump again of people having difficulties, particularly, you know, people in their early 30s as well, not just in their late 30s and early 40s. Yeah, yeah, agreed. I mean, let's just look at the sperm count. So a 2017 systematic review found that sperm counts had declined by as, by as much as 50% since 1973. Now, I find that quite alarming, to be honest. Oh, yeah. It's so shocking. I actually had a, a conversation about this at a dinner party a few months ago, you know, and, and everybody was saying like, no way. And I had to pull up. <laughs> I, then I sort of, you know, second guess myself because I was like, well, maybe mm. it wasn't 50%. That sounds massive. Um, and then I pulled it up and, and everybody was like, what? It's absolutely shocking. Yeah. And I mean, why do you think that there has been such a decline in sperm counts? I mean, there is so many kind of reasons and sperm is, you know, one of the smallest cells in the body and is just so vulnerable. So I think we've absolutely got, you know, advanced paternal age as being an issue, poor diet, nutritional deficiencies, chemical exposure is massive. I think there's lots mm. of kind of research looking at, you know, in these environmental causes, xenoestrogens in plastics and pollutants, pesticides, herbicides. Those things in our environment are huge. Things like drugs, smoking, alcohol, vaping, which is massive at the moment and mm. quite scary as well. And I think there's also a lot of um, evidence and research kind of coming through on electromagnetic radiation, so mm. things from mobile phones and laptops and things like that. Yeah, and I mean, I was reading over the last week a lot of research on male fertility and I came across a 2019 paper on substance abuse and hypogonadism and it, there was two approaches, you know, there was the factors like environmental causes and alcohol that actually reduce testosterone while other factors like nicotine and amphetamines, you know, they're causing damage through oxidative stress. So there's these different mechanisms at play that's really causing problems with sperm. Mm, absolutely. It's just so multifactorial and sperm's just so vulnerable to damage. Mm. And I think also too, you know, when you look at, um, I guess, the age of people and particularly men having children now, they also have been just by life exposed to more They've drank more alcohol, you yeah. know, they may have been, you know, they've used drugs occasionally, just what they've been exposed to, you know, mobile phones, laptops, you know, heating, all those sorts of things. Lack of sleep, we you know that's a big one. Yeah. Anabolic steroids. I know certainly um, where I practice, I feel like so many people's partners have had a history of steroid use. Well, can I just tell you this brief I had a case oh, just in the last couple of months anyway. They had one child already. She's trying to get pregnant again, cannot get pregnant. She's done the high cosy, the ultrasounds, the bloods, you know, you name it, she's done it. They finally organise a sperm count. He has zero sperm count because he's been taking anabolic steroids. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, I, I was actually quite blown away to see that on a report really yeah. blew my mind. These are powerful drugs. 
Absolutely. And they do, I mean, they're obviously worse while you're using them, but, you know, I've got patients who, you know, used them 5, 10, 15 years ago and we're, I'm still seeing really poor sperm parameters mm. um, or semen parameters, which, you know, likely is based on that history of use as well. Yeah, exactly. That's right. I mean, sperm can you know, they can turn around. I mean, we get good changes in DNA fragmentation when we do our amazing work, but some things, you know, that damage is just going to be there for a long time. Mm, absolutely. And look, and that's the exciting thing about sperm though, right, is that, you know, it, it is made every three or four months. There is so much that we can do. And, you know, I often think it's, I almost kind of not hope that the issue with sperm as I'm working out my fertility patients and really trying to kind of investigate what's going on. But I know that a lot of the time, obviously not if it's some sort of genetic condition or, or something else that's kind of happened along the way, but a lot of the time it, it is an area where we really can just make a huge difference. And men in particular, possibly slightly sexist, I know, so sorry about that, mm. but often, often are really much more numbers-based than women, I find, in my yeah, clinic. Of you course. know, women will be like, oh, these things are good for my egg quality. Absolutely, I'm really into that, or this is what I'm going to do with my diet. And and a lot of men, um, and forgive me for generalising, will be, look, you know, this is your semen analysis. This is what we want it to be. Mm. Let's test it again in four months' time if you haven't already conceived. Mm. Um, and let's see if what we're doing is making an impact. And I think that's the really exciting thing about sperm is that we can measure it sort of so nicely in, in many ways. Um, and so that helps to keep that person um, on track. I mean, hopefully your guy with the steroid use would have been hopefully quite motivated by seeing um, that result. He was a little bit shocked but also yeah. shamed and reluctant um, yeah. but, you know, he's on medical treatment now, so, you know, we just have to work yeah. alongside that. Now, I wanted to talk about sperm testing because you and I both know that there's better ways to do it and there's terrible ways to do it. So, it's, <laughs> There's sperm it's, testing and there's sperm testing. Yeah, that's right. And, and I would agree with you. It is absolutely invaluable in clinical practice and it really helps me as a practitioner to determine what I'm going to recommend in the way of supplements and diet and lifestyle. But what are the do's and don'ts? Talk us through the do's and don'ts of an accurate sperm test, one that you can confidently use yep. the information from and make recommendations. So first of all, the first do is get one done. Yeah. So even if you're not seeing that male partner, so I know most of my patients will, will come in with, with both, but a big proportion also come in um, with just the female. It feels mm. like it's all just a female kind of issue. So even if I'm not seeing them, I'm like, I need them to kind of do one, you know. So mm. we need to kind of make sure that there is one that has been completed and that your eyes have seen it if it has been done. <laughs> so, you know, the doctor saying, oh, you know, the doctor said it was fine and then you write down, oh, it says, you know, sperm fine and then leave it, like that's the don't. So mm. that's not even, we haven't even got to our actual testing, but, you know, make sure that you have tested and make sure that you don't just rely on somebody else saying it's fine. Oh, look, that to me drives me completely bonkers in clinical practice because, the men be told it's fine and then you look at it yourself and you're like, it's not fine. It's mm. it's so far from optimal, I guess, is the point. I'm always saying to patients, you know, normal is not always optimal. It's just average. You don't want to be yeah. average. <laughs> <laughs> 
And even if it's fine and it's actually, you know, even if, if they've told that it's fine and it's actually not fine, I had a patient trying, they're trying to conceive their second child, the first child, five. So they're mm. trying to conceive the second child for three years. Mm. They're both in their very early 30s and they pushed the doctor to have a semen analysis um, a year ago yeah. and were told that it was fine and she started seeing me, not him. I eventually, after asking several times, got a hold of the analysis. The motility mm. was like 10%. Mm. Like that sperm was not even getting And I said, yeah, this is actually, it was so unlikely to kind of conceive naturally you know, if this is still the case at the moment mm. and, you know, we, we're getting it done again and they were really sort of disappointed because they were like, well, why weren't we sort of referred on at that time mm. and whatever? And, and I think sometimes, you know, when the patient has actually pushed to get the analysis done, mm. sometimes when the result comes back, the GP may or may not have the experience to know when to refer them on, particularly if they're young and mm. they've already got a child. Do you know what I mean? Like it doesn't feel like maybe they need to see a fertility specialist, you know, if you're 31 you've already got a child but yeah. you know as we know you do so if you are getting an analysis which as we've said is incredibly important yeah you can get it done either at a fertility clinic mm. so that doesn't mean that they've got to go and see a doctor there you can still use the lab of a fertility clinic which is the important thing yeah. so what we don't want to do is to do a test at home take it with you <laughs> drop it off at your local kind of pathology center you know who knows how they keep it and yeah. how it's tested so that's a really kind of like just a you know when people come in with a result from just a, that they've done like that from a just general pathology just look at that as in okay it's not hideous, but we're going to need to do it again if the picture calls for it. You know, they've yeah. been trying for a while and it hasn't been happening. You want to get it done at the clinic yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so it needs to be that they've had the right amount of days abstinence. It's usually three days of abstinence that so we can get a really um, a baseline of like when that gets tested again, yeah. it's the same the next time as well. So really in the fertility clinics, they'll have a much more in-depth look at it. So you might actually get a worse result mm. at a fertility clinic compared to what you got in a past result at the pathology clinic. And they just need to kind of be aware that you can't actually kind of compare them because the fertility clinic, the testing is just so much kind of more vigorous. Yeah, I would have to agree. And as far as, you know, usually the updated semen analysis at, at an IVF lab does come back worse. And you almost have to mentally prepare them yeah. for that kind of result because, you know, it, unfortunately it's part of the process, but that's the realistic picture that yeah. you're looking at. Yeah. And what about if a man is not well? You know, if he's got a cold or something, should he hold off doing the analysis? Would that make yeah. a difference? Absolutely. Like if you've just got a little tiny kind of head cold, you probably, I mean, nowadays you can't go anywhere if you've got a head cold, but if you've just got a little bit of a head cold, you know, that should be kind of okay if it's just kind of quite mild, a bit of a sniffly nose. Mm. But certainly if you've been unwell, you've had a fever, you've had any kind of bacterial in infection or, you know, needed antibiotics because of some kind of infection, yeah. I would generally wait at least a couple more weeks of being well to get it done. And they're expensive to do and they're, I mean, look, the, the general semen analysis for Australia, they're around about $100 and you get 80 or 90 back on Medicare. It's that second part of the analysis called the DNA fragmentation, which is 300 to $400, mm. you know, so we don't want to be sending men back there every five minutes. They're not usually jumping up and down 
waiting to go again. No. <laughs> so we want to make sure that the, the, the result that we're capturing is actually an accurate representation of what has been going on for the last few months. Yeah, some really great points there. So first of all, get one done. Second yeah. of all, make sure if they've had it done, you cite that analysis yourself and then if they need to be referred, send them to an IVF lab, remind them of the three days of abstinence and then don't do it if you're sick. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I pretty much always get a DNA fragmentation done at the same time. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of whenever you get a DNA fragmentation test done with a semen analysis, it's always an add-on to the semen analysis. So you can't go back and just do that part. So it is that extra money, um, which is expensive. But otherwise, if you're just looking at the analysis, so the general analysis will have the concentration, the count, the morphology, what they look like, the motility, how they're moving and how they swim. Mm. All those things are really important information. But if the DNA inside that sperm is fragmented or broken down, Mm. um, you know, so meaning the integrity of the genetic material in the sperm isn't okay, then that sperm can look good, but inside it may not actually have what it needs to to fertilise. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, what does the literature say about DNA fragmentation? I know it's it's a bit of a passion of yours, but talk us through its use in clinical practice? Mm. So I guess that the sperm DNA fragmentation basically is is referring to abnormal genetic material within the sperm. And Mm. research has shown that that can lead to male subfertility, IVF failure, miscarriage, maybe poor embryo progression, um, you know, not going all the way to day five, particularly a drop-off between day three and day five in an IVF cycle. It's basically just the DNA inside that sperm is fragmenting or breaking down. So there's an actual physical break in one or both of the DNA strands of the chromosomes that are actually contained in the sperm. And so that that genetic material is really crucial for successful fertilisation and normal embryo development as well. Yeah. And I often say to people, it's like seeing, you know, a gorgeous guy, person, whatever, standing over there. You're like, oh, my gosh, that's my next, that's my, that's my next husband. That, that <laughs> should be my husband over there. I'm going to go and talk to him. You go over and you just can't get a conversation going, right? <laughs> Everybody's been there, right? So everything can look good. Everything can, it can move well. Everything can kind of be perfect. But it's what's inside that also matters. Mm. Um probably should matter more in a relationship sense. But with sperm, we want the outside to also be good, a little bit superficial, but the inside is really important. And I often actually use that analogy and and patients then kind of understand it Mm. because sometimes it's difficult for them to understand why the semen analysis can actually be okay. But then when we get it done again, I'm wanting to add that DNA fragmentation. Now, I'd always add that if there's any sort of a toxic exposure. So maybe your patient is a house painter, maybe they're a diesel mechanic, you know, maybe they're a landscape gardener, a hairdresser, you're probably being exposed to lots in your occupation. And then where there is advanced paternal age as well. Now, what is advanced paternal age? Nobody knows. Yeah. <laughs> so and, certainly above 40 for me. Okay. And, and, and But I would test the DNA frag in anybody over 35. Okay. So over 35, you think it's worthwhile getting done and, and you know, the cost is justified and relevant for them. It just means that I guess then if in another four, five, six months they still haven't conceived, you're not sort of like, oh, maybe we should have checked that DNA frag. Let's go back and do it again. Do you mind booking another semen analysis? Mm. Like at least then we kind of know, you know, we're not getting semen analysis for people who've been trying for two months to no. conceive, right? So these are people who have 
some degree of subfertility. And I do believe that it is in their best interest to get an, an accurate workup yeah. from the beginning. And I mean, clinically, does this mean that it's a couple that don't seem to have any other fertility impediments that are obvious and they're not conceiving at all? Or if she's doing her basal body temperatures, will you see that fertilisation is occurring but implantation fails? Like what do you actually see clinically with this issue? Yeah, look, it can be any or all of the above. I say, mm. So we've got current research is kind of suggesting that the presence of DNA damage in sperm can more than double your risk of miscarriage and loss. Right. So for people who are having, you know, recurrent miscarriage, obviously we're working up everything else in the female, but that part is also really important as well. Mm. Um, I'm often seeing poor embryo progression in an IVF cycle, like I mentioned. You know, but to be honest, because there really are so few comparatively things that we're working up with male fertility compared to the poor woman who's just being turned inside out with, yeah. um, you know, investigations. All of those things that you mentioned, not conceiving, having losses, any type of kind of fertility issue, yeah. poor fertilisation, all that sort of stuff, we just want to make sure that, that that sperm is actually doing what it's meant to be doing. And DNA frag, it's like, again, you know, obviously I'm a nerd, it's, I was about to say it's really exciting mm. <laughs> because most of the time we can get it so much better. You know, I've seen some DNA damage like halve in yeah. three to four months of kind of treatment. So yeah. unless yeah, yeah. there's, you know, they've had some sort of chemotherapy or something like that, which can maybe make more longer lasting damage, then a lot of the time it's really well improved with diet, lifestyle and supplementation. Yeah, I have to say like one one case comes to mind for me and he had a high level of DNA fragmentation and, you know, he wasn't really willing to take much, right? Mm. He, he just wasn't willing, but he was prepared to stop smoking and start walking. And that was literally all we did. And yeah. his DNA fragmentation really improved just with those two interventions. And I was actually quite shocked at how much it improved. I really was, but it made me realise male fertility is so malleable to change because of the short time frame involved in spermatogenesis. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I think, you know, the smoking thing cannot be underrated. Mm. So there is research paper upon research paper on the negative effects of smoking. Um, And like I mentioned earlier in the conversation, vaping I can't believe how many people, like normal adults, you know, not just teenagers and teenagers are vaping, you know. And so I think we're going to see huge issues with that as well. Mm. But even a small amount of cigarettes, um, there's also those, and I can't remember the name of them, but there's like a traditional, I'm pretty sure they're Lebanese. Oh, the hooker. It's like a hooker, but there's another name for it. So I didn't know whether hooker was the real name. But yeah, but often there is, even though the fruity ones, they've often got really, really high doses of nicotine in Mm. there as well. Um, And I've certainly got quite a lot of patients that I've had to tell them the equivalent of that compared to kind of cigarettes and make them really realise that that they also have that same kind of effect on sperm. Yeah. What are some other strategies? What are some other nutrients that improves DNA fragmentation specifically? What are you seeing uh, really good clinical results with? 
first of all, regular ejaculation, right? So coming back to those real basic naturopathic principles of, you know, really getting that diet and lifestyle sorted first. So regular ejaculation. Now, a lot of people, as you and I will know, when they have been trying to conceive for a while, unfortunately, sometimes they, sometimes they, or not unfortunately, sometimes they're having lots of sex Mm. and sometimes they're really not having much at all. So they might be doing every second day, for a week in the middle of a cycle. And that's, then that's the pattern. It. Yeah, that's the pattern yep. that you see most commonly. Absolutely. Or they're doing IVF and you know, they've had so much stress and so many times of having to try that they've just dropped off actually having sex for fun. And mm. so regular ejaculation we know can really improve DNA fragmentation. So, you know, a good every couple of days, two or three times a week if the DNA fragmentation is low. I mean, if they're already having you know, regular ejaculation or sex. They don't need to do more. Mm. But people who really are maybe, oh, you know, once every week or two or something like that, that is really important. What do you think the mechanism is there that improves the DNA fragmentation though? Yeah, I think it's just turning it over. So this, the, the sperm just isn't kind of like there in the testes and the DNA is sort of fragmenting and breaking down. So you're just getting much faster turnover. So it's being produced and it's not really being allowed to age as much. Yeah, I think the the ability of sperm to, you know, suffer oxidative damage is so high mm. that it just, you know, shortens the time frame for or that window of oxidative damage to occur. And especially then as we get older too, when we've already got that potentially a bit high level of oxidative stress, Mm. you know, and then we add a little bit more onto that, that can be disastrous for sperm. Yeah, agreed. How about some nutrients? What would be a couple of your favourite nutrients from a DNA fragmentation or male fertility, but either one? Yeah. I think for DNA frag, certainly vitamin E, And vitamin C, you know, work really beautifully in terms of protecting the sperm membrane from oxidative damage and really improving that DNA fragmentation as well. Um, I'm often doing CoQ10 or potentially uh, ubiquinol as well. Mm. So look, all of your antioxidants, whether it's N-acetylcysteine, acetylcarnitine, vitamin E, vitamin C, Mm. vitamin D, don't forget about vitamin D, and then, you know, making sure their diet's kind of really full of antioxidants as well. Yeah. I also think dosing, the actual dose makes so much difference. So looking at a paper that came out in 2019, the MOXIE study, which was male antioxidants and infertility, and it was men taking three months of an antioxidant formula, and it really didn't show much improvement. And I was like, why is that so? Because that's not what I see clinically. Mm. But then when I looked at the actual doses of what was in in that antioxidant formula. You know, for example, I had 500 milligrams of vitamin C. Now that's much lower than I would prescribe clinically. And I think that, you know, theoretically we think, oh yes, antioxidants, that makes sense with sperm. But give us some more information around dosing, because I think that's where the magic happens when you get the dose right, that actually affects a change. And, you know, we may see this, you know, people have come in to see your clinic and they're like, oh, I've seen a naturopath before and, oh, I took this and it didn't really work. But then when you question them, you know, carefully, you can just see that the failure has not been in prescribing the wrong thing, but prescribing the correct dose. Yes. And and the correct kind of combination and for the right amount of time and, and even the quality as well. You know, if you get a poor quality vitamin E that's a low dose and it's potentially already oxidized, I mean, potentially it's becoming actually 
pro-inflammatory instead of, you know, anti-inflammatory, pro-oxidation. So it's really important in terms of, you know, not just sort of going, oh, yeah, you pick this up off the shelf, great. You know, I'll often kind of try to get them to use those things up and then give them another alternative. Mm. But certainly the doses from that MOXIE study, I mean, you know, like that 500 milligrams of vitamin C, I mean, you know, that that's barely what we'd even call a supplemental dose. And I think the really um, important thing is that we actually are using therapeutic doses, not just supplemental doses, you know. So, yeah. you know, making sure that, you know, with vitamin C, we know that it's better little and often. So you might be doing a thousand milligrams, but you might be doing two or three times a day. You know, it works beautifully. We know with with kind of vitamin E. Vitamin D, you know, making sure that you're dosing according to the test results. Yeah. You know, so this can really improve like motility and concentration, but we need to be getting the right dose. So not just, oh, I've been low in vitamin D, so I've been taking this particular over-the-counter 1000 IU brand the last year, Mm. you know, you you could easily think, oh, yeah, that should be fine. But those ones, you've got to remember, they're just designed to keep you where you're at, right, rather than actually ever increase those levels. So some of these things we can test, um, like vitamin D, but most of them, vitamin C, vitamin E and things like that, aren't testable. We've just got to kind of be using them. Yeah. But I think as well, it's also thinking about, well, how is that nutrient actually absorbed? Are there any Mm. barriers to how that's being absorbed? You know, vitamin D is fat soluble. So do they have good levels of digestive enzyme? Are they actually absorbing what you're giving them as well? Is Mm. so critical because I think another clinical presentation I see is that when fertility patients come in and they bring with them a bag or a box of supplements (laughs) and I kind of look at them and I'm like, well, I actually don't know how much you're absorbing out of all of that and I don't know how much you're excreting, but from your symptoms, I don't think you're absorbing what you need to be to get this therapeutic shift. So how do you work with that absorption factor? Yeah, I think when they come with that big bag of vitamins and gosh, we've all had that, some of it, yes, absolutely might be an absorption issue, but a lot of the time, you know, they're buying over-the-counter vitamins, they're buying them from overseas on Mm. websites and like does it really have 25 milligrams of zinc in it or doesn't it? So is it an absorption issue or is it just a poor quality vitamin that really only had five milligrams of zinc oxide that you don't absorb particularly well anyway? You know, so, I mean, who even knows in that sense? But look, certainly I think one of the most important things is and particularly, you know, when people do come in with all their bits and pieces, mm-hmm. is really giving them a dose sheet. So giving them, you know, a spreadsheet that tells them exactly what to take and when. Yeah. So like you mentioned, you know, if you've got vitamin D or you've got fish oils or, or say vitamin E that need to be absorbed with fat in a meal, mm-hmm. obviously, you know, naturopathically we're going to be working on their digestion and, and making sure that their digestive system is working well anyway, mm. but making sure that they really know when to be taking those vitamins. Because I'll often ask them when they come in with their bag, or oh, when do you take these? Oh, take this one or this one before bed. I take this one, you know, whatever. And, and you're like, oh, like you're taking iron and zinc at the same time. Yeah. You know, you're taking vitamin D before bed on an yeah. empty stomach. You're So I think that we can really kind of like help them as well. And and I think that's what a lot of patients want Yeah, is that they often will get started on their own, but then they do actually want that level of support. And often they're just buying those things. They've read a book or they've heard something and they've done some research online, Yeah, you know, and, and they usually are quite happy to be then sort of transitioned over into a better quality practitioner only 
vitamin when there's finished of those as well. And like we said with sperm, you know, we can test it again. Mm. So, you know, often they'll say, how long have you been on these for? And they might say, oh, six months. It's like we've done two semen analysis in that time and, you know, they both were poor. Yeah. So, Let's not just keep taking something that's meant to work. And even with my stuff too, I say, look, let's work on this morphology for four months and retest if you haven't already fallen pregnant by then. If what we're doing is not working, let's not waste your money and time because it should be. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, let's look let's look at why or what else or change it up or or see what else might be kind of going on. Yeah, agreed. And you know, these patients are very vulnerable patients, fertility is epically a roller coaster. And I think as practitioners, it is our duty of care to sort of put a line in the sand sometimes and say, mm. you, know, you know, we can see that this isn't giving us the results we need and we need to think outside the square. What else do you think affects sperm health? So I always think I want the men coming to see me to have like super, super healthy sperm. Yeah. What else do you think gets in the way of that? Look, I certainly think diet is a big one. Mm. Sleep quality is a big one. You know, I think for, for men, like so much of it is actually just diet and lifestyle based, isn't yeah. it? You know, how much alcohol are they drinking? How much coffee are they having? You know, what are their stress levels like? Are they getting enough sleep? You know, we know that there's been research saying that, that men who sleep for six hours a night mm. are 31% less likely to get pregnant well, get their partners pregnant, then yeah. um, those who get between sort of seven and eight hours because of that kind of production in testosterone, you know, if you don't sleep enough, that reduces the release of testosterone. So, you know, even just sort of simple things like that. I mean, how many men do we know that get less than six hours sleep a night? Yeah, a plenty. Yeah, absolutely plenty. Yeah. And look, I was reading a 2018 review and it discussed the benefits of omega-3 fatty acids alongside a Mediterranean diet, which I think is, mm-hmm. a, you know, the most researched diet in the world and one that most naturopaths and practitioners would feel very comfortable with. But interestingly, it also mentioned in the same paper the harmful effects of xenoestrogens found in the conventional dairy and beef. So, yeah. you know, what are your top three dietary strategies to help produce, you know, sperm with a high fertility potential? Well, I mean, I think, I think, and I'm going to come to my top three in a second. Yeah. You know, if you guys have looked at that Earth study, so that's the Environment Reproductive Health Study, Mm. um, which is like an ongoing sort of preconception cohort, which is looking at, I think, the impact of like nutritional lifestyle, environmental factors in men and women on fertility and pregnancy. So they were looking at male factor on IVF outcomes and they were saying that soy food intake is negatively associated with sperm concentration, saturated and trans fatty acid intake negatively associated with sperm concentration, whereas your fish and omega-3s, like you mentioned, associated with an increase in sperm morphology, you know, and then that pesticides, pesticides in fruit and vegetables, lower sperm quality, lower sperm morphology. So there's so much research in this area Mm. for us to really be able to kind of sink our teeth into. And so I guess what I would say in terms of my top three strategies is that I've got this kind of what I call my healthy eating mantra. So every time that they, well, most times that they eat, I want them to have something on their plate that's a source of good quality protein, some good fats and something fresh, which is ideally salad or vegetables or maybe fruit. You know, so that way then if they're filling up with things they need to be having, we're basically trying to crowd out sugar, 
excess bread and grains. They can have bread and grains if they feel like it, but it needs to be more the accompaniment to the meal rather than the basis of the meal. So I think mm. that really getting that nutrient-dense meal is really important. Yes. Um, and really looking at where their fats are coming from because like you mentioned, the Mediterranean diet, so there's been a lot of research between on fertility between the Mediterranean diet and then just sort of like a general healthy low processed diet, which yeah. is sort of like you'd think was nearly the same. But the main difference in it was actually just the use of oils and particularly olive oil in the Mediterranean. And so they're saying that it's actually that use of olive oil and cold-pressed oils yeah. that actually improves, that that actually gives it the edge on fertility. Hmm. I love that. I really love that. I use a lot of olive oil in my house. Oh, love the olive oil, yeah. <laughs> and so, again, make sure it's stored properly. Give them a little bit of kind of guidance. I mean, I just spend an hour on it. But, you know, just is it in a dark bottle? Do you keep it in the cupboard? How do you kind of use it rather than, oh, yeah, and I get it in a big bowl and I sit it in the sun and I love to let things fall in it. And <laughs> Yeah, and I think this is where, you know, handouts and follow-up information can be so helpful when working um, in male fertility because I've got to say nearly every man that I've ever worked with in this space, he just really appreciates data. And so yeah. if you can provide them with data, it's kind of speaking their language, you know, explain mm. them the research on smoking if they're a smoker, you know, really get them on board by going through the data. I found that to be such a great successful way to work clinically rather than, you know, with women we can tend to be a little bit more emotive and sort of softer and more storytelling like in our consults with men. It's like I really find that they respond so well for the hard data. They not only respond, and obviously we're talking generally, they yeah. not only respond really well to hard data, you've got to have them in front of you online, in person, whatever, rather than using mm. the, the woman as the conduit. That is a terrible, I think, way of doing it. They respond really well to kind of direct conversation data with specific, you know, on the dose sheet, I always do very specific things that I want them to kind of be focused on. Yeah. And it's really interesting because when I have just a male um, consult repeat, you know, and I go I'm going through, I'm like, oh, you know, so were you able to um, reduce your alcohol to intake? And like, yeah, you told me to. Yeah. Like, oh, yep, yep. Okay, <laughs> tick that off. And um, how many coffees are you doing? And they're like, well, you said to not do more than one. I'm like, Correct. oh, but like, are you doing that? Like, yeah. You know, so it's actually also like a really fast consult sometimes <laughs> because often if they're motivated and, you, and it's your responsibility to help them to get motivated mm. with this data, with the look of outcomes, with understanding a roadmap of, look, we're doing this for four months and then retesting if you're not already pregnant by then. So it's highly motivating. And I would say that a good 80 plus percent of the time, mm. they then just take on all the things that you tell them to. But you've got to spell them out and you've got to write down exactly what it is that, that needs to kind of be done. So not overwhelming somebody with information, yeah. but really giving them the the things that need to be done. And do you find that in clinic? Because they often are like, yep, did that. Yep, Absolutely. Did that. Like, oh, wow. You just <laughs> Yeah, they're really compliant. And I think it's when you get granular with them and give them very specific things to do, you know, they're really responsive. And it's really yeah. incredibly rewarding when you get that second or that repeat sperm analysis back and you can be sharing, you know, how amazing it is with them and how what they've done has resulted in this improved outcome. Yeah. It, it's so exciting to, that consult is always a really good one. <laughs> it's really good. I had a 
patient just a couple of weeks ago and they're now pregnant with their second child. Actually, the first one's uh, four mm. and they've been trying for three years, so quite similar to the other one. And and this guy had really high level of, of anti-sperm antibodies and they right. wanted to treat him um, with low-dose naltroxin. They wanted to do all these things. They wanted to do them to do IVF, but they this couple were not interested in that because mm. of religious reasons. And they said to me, look, we need you to get these down they said look they were like look it's going to be really difficult even with IVF and things and literally four months later and we were about to get them retested she falls pregnant then he gets them retested and they've gone down by 90% they're like low normal even even I was like okay that's amazing (laughs) um (laughs) wow did we really just do that and unbelievable like oh I mean believable that's what we're trying to do obviously yeah but you know sometimes we're just like wow you know they'd been told that was it you know like if they weren't going to be open to IVF, they wouldn't be conceiving naturally and sorry, this is the end of the road type of thing. And yeah. You know, and, and those are not sort of one-off stories. No. Like, I think, you know, anyone that works in fertility would would have similar stories. And this is where I think it's so exciting, the profound difference that we can make to not only this, the male fertility, but also to that future child's health. You know, mm. it's going to be optimised and it's going to be better because of better sperm health. The, health. Like it's, yep. the research is really there. Um, now, I know you work a lot in IVF, but what's a tip that you can share about liaising with the medical profession throughout collaborative care? Look, I'm really big on collaborative care and I guess, you know, I've, I've sort of gotten to that point by, you know, there's doctors and specialists that I use a lot. They refer to me, I refer to them. Mm. And so the more that you can kind of be working with a group of doctors and specialists, they get to know you and they get to understand how you're working and see the improvement as well. So so some of that is just stick with it. Yeah. <laughs> Find people that you feel like you can trust or that you respect their work. You know, when you're referring to them, they'll then start to see the type of clients and what you're doing with patients and start to build some trust with you as well. Because a lot of the time it is just about that building yeah. trust. So, you know, I always write um, a letter detailing, you know, what we're doing, if we're wanting to doing any tests and things via a GP. There's always a, a brief history, writing down what's kind of happening and what we're wanting to do. I don't necessarily write why I want to do those tests, but yeah. it's sort of like, you know, that we're wanting to do this kind of comprehensive thing. And I always sort of say, you know, thank you for your care and co-management of da 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 So I was like, okay, we're both working together here. Yes. And, and you're not always going to get people that want to work with you and that, that's okay. Mm. You know, you just know that once you do start to get, whether it's doctors or specialists and things that are referring back to you or even just to start with that, you know, are, are saying to your patient, oh, I appreciated Belinda's letter. Yep, that's great. Or yep, yeah, Belinda's, you know, taking care of the supplements. That's great. You know, even that's just that sort of first step of getting that respect kind of going each way. But we do need to, I guess, earn respect. Absolutely. Um, it yes. doesn't just come. And, yeah. and we don't give respect to people that haven't kind of earned it really either. So, yeah. you know, it does kind of cut both ways. So just, just make sure that you are very direct in terms of not rude, but succinct is probably the better way of kind of yeah. saying that. You know, don't waste somebody's time. No, they're busy. Um, they're very busy. And don't <laughs> ask for things that you know you're not going to get. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> you know, so if you're wanting to refer for things that aren't Medicare rebatable tests, you know, I don't add them onto the big list of things that mm. I want to ask them to because you're just starting to then go, oh, they're going to sort of get their back up a little bit or they're like, oh, I don't really know too much about that test. So yeah. if it's not a Medicare rebatable test, just, just refer for it. Yourself. Yeah. And I wanted to talk about, 
you know, I've been reading around male infertility and melatonin. And the mm. research is interesting. You know, it definitely is showing that melatonin influences LH and FSH and, you know, therefore testicular function and it really can affect spermatogenesis. Are you using any melatonin clinically? Have you, you know, looked at the research? What are your thoughts? Because it is a bit novel, I know. It's a bit new. Yeah. Look, I have had a look at the research and I do find it really interesting. And I think the naturopath in me tries to kind of relate it, and this is obviously not scientifically based, tries to relate it back to lifestyle and sleep and things Mm. as well. So in Australia, melatonin is a prescription and I don't really see it being given out for sperm and spermatogenesis and things really at all, to be honest. Mm. So people who have been on it have usually bought it from overseas, over the counter. So I'm not exactly sure of the doses and things, but when people are on it, particularly um, women, I'm like, okay, that's actually really useful for egg health as well. Mm. So if you are taking that, then that's certainly not, not a bad thing. So I do wonder though, like I mentioned, that study that looked at you know, the sleep quality and there has been, you know, short and long, to be honest, sleep durations and late bedtimes have been associated with impaired sperm health. We know that men produce testosterone, which is a prominent hormone in sperm production Mm. while they sleep. So I wonder as to whether we can use some of that research on melatonin to kind of be able to go, look, you can produce your own melatonin by getting enough sleep and sleeping at the right time Mm. dark rooms and things. But yeah, I, I haven't actually been using actual melatonin, you know, and, and seeing the impact on that. But I do think it's really exciting because, you know, there's almost no contraindications to yeah. using it. So Yeah. And and look, you know, there's always something new and novel in naturopathic medicine, isn't there? So it's just yeah. interesting to, uh, you know, see what else other practitioners are doing out there. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's um, the thing, like, there's always more you can do. You know, patients will be like, oh, what about this? Like, can I also take some mm. this? And like, oh, if you want to. Like, you know, like, there's sort of that often where I sort of say, look, you know, there's not really a harm in doing that, but I do feel really confident with the protocol that we've got here yeah. so that they're actually able to follow through on the protocol that you've got rather than sort of, you know, chopping and changing as soon as they yeah, that's read just, something new. Yeah, it's just not effective. Now, I wanted to ask you one of my last questions is what advice would you give a new graduate or a new pracky on building a successful but most importantly a financially viable clinical practice? I mean, you've been in practice for 17 years. You've run your business. You are clearly very successful. What would be some advice to somebody that is less experienced or is just graduated? Yeah, look, it it does take a little while to build your client base. So I think the first thing is have patience. Don't have an unrealistic expectation on what it is going to be. So, you know, you need to be getting new clients and then repeat clients. And then some of those repeat clients will become inactive Mm. and then they'll reactivate themselves after six months, six years whatever. So, you know, so it takes a while to get those, you know, all those different types of clients kind of happening. I think in terms of what we give them, and I've I've had, you know, um, three or four associates sort of working under me now. And and the biggest thing that people tend to kind of do Mm. is to overgive information. And I know you and I have spoken about this before. The fire hosing. (laughs) I call it fire hosing. It's just too much, too quick, and it blows the patient out. It's just too much. Yes. Agreed. Sometimes you've given them a a dose sheet that actually has everything they need to do for the next five years to ever be well and healthy again. So what's the point in coming back? Agreed. 
and you're also not doing them any favours because it's not like you've given them that five-year plan and now they're going to actually enact it. They're going to go, oh, my gosh, that was way too much. I've done three things and I've forgotten about it and I'm not going back because I feel like I haven't actually done what she's asked me to do. So, yeah. so make sure that you're really giving – I guess, patient-centric, the things that they're tips, make sure they're very, very clear. Don't over-explain. You know, like when the physio says to me, oh, you know, these are the exercises we need to do, this is why. I'm happy with just hearing that this is why in a one-sentence kind of nutshell. Yeah. And obviously some people want to know more and that's great. You can give them more. But I don't need them to write down for me exactly why we're doing every single exercise and all this sort of stuff. And mm. it's like I just want to know what I'm doing for the next, say, week or two until I see the physio again. And then when I go back, they can kind of then give me that feedback, you know, because they're not as interested in it as we are. <laughs> no, agreed. And I love those tips. So be patient. Don't fire hose your patients. Yes. Take things step by step and give very clear, practical um, instructions to your patients. Don't over, yeah. don't overcomplicate it. Well, Belinda, thank you so much for spending the time with us today, and thanks for all the amazing work you're doing in this area. I mean, infertility is such an emotional experience for our patients who are experiencing it, and and you really provide practical and manageable solutions. So, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. Well, thanks everyone for listening today. Don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website, fxmedicine.com.au. I'm Emma Sutherland and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hi, I'm Carla Wren. Clinicians in this post-pandemic era are managing an increase of post-viral illness, including autoimmune activation or worsening of autoimmune symptoms, neuroinflammation, and cardiometabolic inflammation, which can seem difficult to unravel. Join me on Wednesday, August 9th at 7pm for Biocytical's Clinical Mastery, Neuroinflammation and the Cognitive Impacts of Post-Viral Syndrome. In this 90-minute session, I'll be sharing my clinical strategies and therapeutics to support the health and vitality of patients suffering with the wide and variable symptoms associated with post-viral syndromes, particularly complex neuroinflammation and its potential chronic health implications. Go to biocyticals.com.au to reserve your place today.